But one of the problems I think that we face in the world today is a lack of historical knowledge. How many people these days are into history, really? History, all too often, it's viewed as something that's boring or irrelevant. Like, why bother with stuff that's already happened? Doesn't the future lie in science and technology? What can history do for us? Well, history can actually do a fair bit for us if we're willing to pay attention. And I'll give you an example. Take the latest pandemic, COVID-19. Most of us are probably still trying to get our heads around what has happened to society as a result of this pandemic. It's kind of taken us by surprise because we've never experienced anything like this before. But anyone with a knowledge of history will know that pandemics are nothing new. They've happened before and they'll happen again. So in reality, it's something we should have been prepared for. The importance of sanitation, social distancing and wearing masks are lessons learnt from previous epidemics. Even the word quarantine goes back to when sailors and passengers arriving on ships in Venice were required to isolate themselves for 40 days. And so the word quarantine has 40 built within it. Get that, quarantining for 40 days. And it was in order to prevent the spread of the bubonic plague, which is said to have caused the death of up to half of the population of Europe back in the Middle Ages. That's just a lesson from history. If we don't know our history, chances are we're going to be caught by surprise and be unprepared. The same thing applies on a spiritual level. And this is why studying the Old Testament is just as important as studying the New Testament. One of the weaknesses that affects us Christians is we might know parts of the New Testament, but when it comes to understanding the Old Testament, that's where we struggle. You see, if we don't understand the history leading up to Jesus, then chances are we're not going to fully understand why Jesus has come and the full significance of what he's done. Now keep in mind that 77% of the Bible is actually the Old Testament. So I think it's a good thing this year that our study program here at church, it's going to have more of an Old Testament focus to it compared to what it might be usually. But this gives us a great opportunity to understand more about God and more about ourselves. Well, let's summarise the story up to Exodus 19 so far. You might recall it. After the fall of Adam, we get humanity being kicked out of the garden. And then after that, God appears to Abraham and tells him that through Abraham and his offspring, God is going to restore blessing to the families of the earth. It's a wonderful promise. But around 430 years after giving Abraham that promise, we find the people of Israel 
who were the descendants of Abraham through the line of Isaac and Jacob, well, we find them enslaved in Egypt. So, what does God do? He saves them, doesn't he? Pharaoh didn't want to let God's people go, but God, through the ten plagues and the miracle of the crossing of the sea, God saves his people. But, is that the end of the story? You know, some films, when there's a magnificent salvation event right at the end, that's the end of the story. But biblically, no, there's much more to come. Having saved his people, what does God do next? Well, let's turn now to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 9, to see what happens. We're told that on the first day of the third month of the year, the Israelites arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. Now, we know that the Exodus took place on the 14th day of the first month. So that means that Israel had been travelling for about a month and a half before they arrived at Sinai. The location of Sinai is disputed these days. Ten different mountains have been suggested over the years. But most likely the mountains, the traditional location known today as Jabal Musa. Musa being the word Moses in Arabic. Now this mountain's located in the Sinai Peninsula region of present-day Egypt. The people had travelled a relatively short journey from Rephidim, where God had given them water, and we see them here camping at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is significant because this is the mountain where in Exodus 3, Moses had met God in the burning bush. And God had told Moses then that in the future, Israel would worship God at this mountain after being rescued from slavery in Egypt. So, while Israel was camping at the foot of the mountain, we see Moses going up the mountain to meet with Yahweh. And on going up, we see God instructing Moses to pass on the content that we see in verses 4 to 6 to the people of Israel. Now, what does God want to tell the people of Israel here? Have a look in verse 4. Verse 4, we see God summarising what he had just done for the people of Israel. God said, You've seen what I did to Egypt, and that I've carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here we see God reminding the people of Israel about the great salvation that he'd won for them. Through the ten plagues and the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea, God had displayed his awesome power. And this was something that the people needed to remember. Not only that, but God had brought them safely into his presence here at Mount Sinai. And notice how God describes this. 
it was as if they had been carried out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Now, eagles are famous in the Bible as being strong and powerful birds with very large wings. So God is reminding Israel here that it's not as if they had to travel from Egypt in a small, single-engine propeller aeroplane. No, they effectively came soaring out on something equivalent to a 747, a big jumbo jet of all things. We see here how God had looked after them. He brought them out of slavery to meet God himself. Now friends, this reminds us of the purpose of salvation in God's plan for his people. Just like the people of Israel, we Christians, we've been saved out of slavery too. We've been saved out of slavery from sin and death to go on a journey in which God carries us to himself. The ultimate destination is for us to meet God and to be with him. And friends, that's a wonderful privilege. Now in verses 5 and 6, God clarifies for Israel how their relationship with him's going to work. And overall, we can see that it's a relationship of privilege and obligation. God starts off by identifying what their obligation is going to be within this relationship. God said to them, And now, if you shall indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then the privileges, which he'll go on to explain, these privileges will be experienced. Now the obligation mentioned here in verse 5 is that Israel must truly listen to God's voice and keep his covenant. Now I noticed that the NIV reading that was just read out said we must obey fully God's voice. That could possibly be misunderstood at that point. It's true that in Hebrew, to listen to a person's voice often means to obey that person, and that's what it means here. But obey fully, really, from the Hebrew perspective here, probably a better translation would be to say to truly obey, or to really obey. Basically, the idea is, whatever God says, we must be committed to that. And we can see here in verse 5 that obedience to God is paralleled with keeping God's covenant. Now, hopefully you guys are familiar with the concept of a covenant. In the Bible, a covenant is basically a binding agreement between two parties that regulates how the parties are going to relate to each other. It's usually only made when there's an important agreement to be made. So usually there'd also be an oath made or given as part of that process. And the point of the oath 
was basically for either one or usually both of the parties through that oath, what they're doing is they're promising that they're going to keep their side of the bargain. And if not, then to suffer the consequences, which were typically laid out in the form of curses that the party who broke the covenant would be liable to suffer as a result. So a covenant is like a strengthened promise. It involves a promise regarding obligations within the relationship and also an oath that threatens curses against any party who would disregard the obligations of the covenant. Okay, so that's what a covenant is in summary. But what covenant is God talking about here in verse 5? Well, there is a little bit of debate about this, but I think it's pretty obvious in the context that God's actually talking here about a covenant that he's going to offer to Israel in a short space of time. In fact, it's a covenant that God is going to offer to enter into with the people of Israel in just three days' time. And we can see that as we read further through Exodus 19. In other words, the covenant talked about here in verse 5 is none other than what's called the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Or else, when contrasted with the new covenant in Christ, this covenant can also be called the old covenant. And the books of Exodus through to Deuteronomy are concerned in large part to basically unpack the terms of this covenant. But notice in general, what was Israel's obligation under this covenant? Well, according to verse 5, Israel's obligation was to listen to God's voice, to obey God. Their obligation was to keep covenant with God. And hopefully that makes sense. Being in a covenant, what's your obligation? Well, it's to keep covenant, to live out your obligations under that agreement. And please keep in mind that this obligation to obey God was an obligation that required commitment from Israel, not absolute perfection. Now, a lot of people fail to see this, but I believe it's an important point to understand. Under the Old Covenant, just like under the New Covenant, God's people owe God obedience, but this is obedience done in the context of grace. As we'll see when we study the book of Leviticus, an important part of the covenant relationship between God and Israel was a system of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So this obedience that Israel owed God, it gets worked out within a system that makes provision for the forgiveness of sins. So overall, from what God is saying here, Israel was under obligation to keep covenant with God. But what about the privileges offered to them within that covenant? 
Well, we can see these talked about in verses 5 and 6. If Israel keeps covenant with God, then according to verse 5, you will be my special possession from all the peoples, God says. Here we see that even though the whole world and all of the nations belong to God, out of all of the nations that exist on earth, Israel at that time was being offered the special privilege of being God's special people, God's treasured possession. Now that's a pretty good benefit, don't you think? It's a wonderful privilege. But notice, they would only be this in reality to the extent that they kept covenant with God. In verse 6, God also says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This description of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it speaks of Israel as a nation dedicated to the service of God. What a privilege to be able to serve God. Out of all of the nations back then, Israel alone was offered this amazing privilege. But once again... They would only be a holy nation in reality to the extent that they served God by keeping themselves holy. So we get here privilege and obligation working together. Well, what do we see next? We see Moses. Basically, he passes on this message from God to the people. But notice how in verse 8... The people respond. What's their response there? Basically, we see them united together, saying, with one voice effectively, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Basically, this is Israel agreeing to the offer. Now, it's one thing to agree to an offer. But the question, the all-important question is going to be, how are they going to respond within this covenant relationship? Are they going to keep their side of the covenant bargain? And basically, the rest of the Old Testament is concerned to trace out exactly what happened. And what we'll see is, well, Israel didn't live out what they were supposed to live out. Anyway, we've looked at there briefly the preparations leading up to the establishment of this covenant at Sinai. It's a kind of history lesson. But the question for us is, in what ways does this history lesson help us today? Is it just history which is irrelevant to us? I would say no. Because the thing is, the privileges and obligations given to Israel back then are basically the same for us today. We might be part of a different covenant, and that's true. We Christians, we're part of the new covenant. We're not part of the old covenant. But the privilege of being God's special servants still applies. In fact, with the coming of the new covenant in Christ, these privileges have been opened up to everyone 
regardless of nationality, to participate in. The privilege we've been given as believers in Christ is to be God's special treasure and a holy people. Now those are wonderful privileges, but along with privilege, there's also obligation. And the obligation for us today is basically the same as for Israel back then. Fundamentally, that obligation is we need to listen to God's word and to live out his word to obey him in the context of grace. For Israel, under the covenant, there was privilege and obligation. And friends, for us today, the same thing applies. There is privilege, wonderful privileges, but also a solemn obligation on us to take this relationship with God seriously. Privilege and obligation. Both of these are part of what it means to be in covenant with God.